So let's start with the rapid-fire rounds. The first one is, at what age do you want to retire? 67. How long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? 10 minutes. Most embarrassing moment of your life? Oh God. Um, most embarrassing, I'm sorry. Uh, when I asked a w woman when her baby was due and she wasn't pregnant. Oh my God. Favorite color? Blue. What time of day are you most inspired? Morning. How many hours of sleep can you survive on? Five. Fill in the blank, an upcoming journalism trend is blank. An upcoming journalism trip is exciting. The city in which the best kiss of your life happened. Washington, D.C. Pick one, Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. Oh man, Mark Zuckerberg. The biggest mistake of your career? I didn't check something carefully enough and I live to regret it. How do you relax? Reading. How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? Two to three. A habit of yours that you dislike? Procrastinating. The most valuable skill you've learned in life. Resilience. Your favorite Netflix show. Oh man, I'm into Apple right now. Um, Go for Apple. Ted Lasso. <laughs> uh, the last film that you saw that had a good impression on you. All About Eve. The last song you've been listening to. Oh man, um, last song I've been listening to was, uh, Willen. Oh wait. So the first one is, can you share a specific example of a time when you struggled with delegation and trust as an editor and how you eventually overcame those challenges? Yes. Uh, when I first became the editor of Harvard Business Review, I used to, I used to edit every single article as if I were the development, the developing editor rather than the top editor. And I realized very quickly that that was unsustainable and that I needed to trust the editors who were all very, very good to do what they did best. And once I realized that, everything went more smoothly. Um, and what I realized is that there are many ways to get to the goal and mine is not the only one. And what steps did you take to build this trust and strengthen the delegation process? It was the steps involved self-reflection and a stringent 
honesty with myself. So I had to understand the problem, that is to diagnose the problem, recognize my role in it, and then figure out how I was going to solve it. And have you ever found it hard to strike a balance between empowering your team members and maintaining quality control? Yes, I have. But I learned in the course of doing that, that if you work with the best people, you can trust them completely to do the job. So in the context of salary equity, uh, you expressed optimism about women moving into positions of authority. How do you believe their presence and decision-making roles will impact salary and promotion disparities? I believe that when women move into positions of power, they will recognize when bias enters the compensation discussion and will not only recognize it, but I certainly hope they will call it out and rectify it. So what specific measures or changes do you think need to be implemented to address salary and promotion disparities in the workplace? Well, having, having salary levels and bands, uh, having transparency in salary levels and bands is important. Uh, I have some concern with the whole question of whether or not we should all be sharing our salaries, because I think that's going to force a race to the bottom that we will, you know, that we will correct to the lower salaries, not to the higher salaries. Uh, but I, I do think transparency on pay levels will help. I also think it, having diversity in the decision-making process, the diversity of voices and perspectives in the decision-making process will help. Could you tell us about your favorite piece published by the Howard Business Review and why it resonates with you? Yes, it's one I've cited often called The Authenticity Paradox by Herminia Ibarra, uh, now of the London Business School. And what I love about this piece is that it challenges the whole notion of keeping it real and being true to yourself when you are uh, a new leader, or actually any leader, trying to figure out what your values are and what you stand for. What she says is keeping it real is just an excuse for not growing. I totally believe that. Um, what she also says is you can't know who you are as a leader until you've tried on several different personas and you understand what feels right to you. So it's a sort of fake it till you make it idea, but it has worked for me. So is it more of like a trial and error idea? Exactly, exactly. I would never say, don't be true to yourself. But if you don't know where you are comfortable and what your values are yet, then you should try a few, a few approaches out. And do you feel like official environments try to restrict you from, restrict one from experimenting with their personas because of societal pressures or anything? I think in general, we are told to follow our passions and to be true to ourselves. And that sets up an expectation that we know ourselves in any given context. And, and having values, I don't think is, your values are not necessarily context dependent but your behavior might be context-dependent. And you have to figure out how all the different factors work together for you. 
So how has this piece influenced or shaped your own perspectives on a particular topic or issue? Well, for one thing, it made me way more comfortable as a leader. And it has helped me uh, as I coach others. Um, it has helped me develop more empathy for others who are growing into their own leadership styles. And I, I have found it enormously value, valuable ever since we published it several years ago. In what ways would you describe the personal and professional growth that you have experienced through hosting the Women at Work podcast? Oh, it's been such an amazing experience. Um, it has, you know, it, one of the things that the Women at Work podcast has done is it's made me more comfortable speaking as myself to, you know, more publicly. Um, we usually, you know, just as editors and Harvard Business Review in particular, is we're a little impersonal and we don't, we don't step into the spotlight. This has helped me a lot with that. It's also given me, uh, it's helped me connect with people I wouldn't have connected with otherwise. It's put me in closer touch with our audience, with our readers. Um, it helps me understand how the work we do affects them and how it influences them. And I've made some amazing friends from this experience, our co-hosts, uh, people who I really, really care about. Is there any interesting story or anecdote that comes to your mind now from the, all the episodes you've hosted? Um, no, I, you know, I, I did form a friendship with one of our guests, someone who's been on quite a lot. But when I first met her, she kind of, she seemed a little bit, um, she's a woman of deep insight um, and very strong views. And when she first came on our show, we were discussing race and some stuff that she said kind of struck me as a little, um, I felt that that she was that what she was saying was a little unfair to me as a white woman. And as I came to know her, I understood where she was coming from. I respect her courage in articulating a view that could have rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I get it. And we've become we've become pretty good friends. Well, while we're on the topic then, the Supreme Court announced uh, this morning that it wants to strike down Harvard business, uh, Harvard's and North Carolina's universities' uh, affirmative action policies. What do you have to say about that? Well, what I have to say is that there's usually more nuance to these decisions than we understand, but um, how they get picked up is the important thing in certain ways. Uh, I need to read the decision. I, what I will more likely do is read the New York Times and, you know, The Economist and all the other places I go to understand how to understand this decision. But um, I personally believe that affirmative action has been enormously important in leveling the play, playing field in the United States. And I don't think 
you can you can read the work of equity to um you i i i think the work of equity still needs the government's official prod official push and so um let's see what this decision really says but in general uh i I would hate to lose affirmative action as a force for good. Uh, oh, tell me more. Sweet. Do you have any opinions on why Howard Business Review has managed to do so well on LinkedIn in the recent times? So well on, on LinkedIn. I think it's because we are very good at understanding what our audience is thinking about, what worries them, that we understand ambition, we understand why people, um, we understand how people who are trying to develop in their careers, who are trying to develop as managers and leaders, we understand how they think. We want to help them do it. The spirit of our work is really uh, about being useful and helpful we never want to tell people what we are, what they already know. You know, we're in it for them. And I think they know that. And that, by them, I mean our audience, our reader. So you mentioned earlier that you go to the New York Times and The Economist to read about the news. Where else do you go besides these two outlets or are there? Well, every morning, my pattern is, my habit is, I read The New York Times, The Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, and if I have time, I read the Washington Post. And then I check in on news all, all the time. I get feeds like everyone else. Um, the Economist, every single weekend, I put time aside to read that. And then, you know, whatever strikes me, I'll read it. I love, um, I love Pop. I love Semaphore um, and some of the other newer outlets. Great, great analysis. Uh, the Huffington Post. So, yeah, I, I sort of, I have my staples and then I have my sort of regular samples. So looking ahead, what are your hopes and aspirations for the future of leadership and workplace dynamics? What changes would you like to see and contribute to? I'd like to see more equity. I'd like to see greater inclusion. I'd like to see workplaces that where that don't just look like the customers they serve, but where decision-making is done by people who look like the customers those organizations serve. Um, I, wanna, I want to see, I, wa I believe that business can be a tremendous force for good. I wanna continue, I wanna see that continue to happen. Um, and, and when businesses and organizations think beyond their narrow profit motive, they can do an, an awful lot of good in the world. So I'd love to see more of that. So considering your experiences and insights, what advice would you give to aspiring editors and managers who are just starting their careers in the publishing industry? Uh, well, I would say Expose yourself to as many experiences as possible. 
read as much as you can, listen to as much as you can, keep an open mind, push yourself outside your comfort zone, make yourself available, and always, always try to do more than you're comfortable doing. That's what I mean by pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. Don't be afraid to fail. The important thing is how you handle the failure. Everyone, everyone screws up every now and then. And are there any three common mistakes that people who enter this industry or intend to enter this industry make? Such a good question. Um, common mistakes. I'll see if I can come up with three of them. Uh, thinking you know everything you need to know, so arrogance is a problem. Um, not being willing to do the work you don't necessarily want to do. Another form of arrogance, that there's entitlement. We um, And acting from a, a place of fear and self-protectiveness. So how does the Harvard, Harvard Business Review continue to grow its audience and how do we think about younger professionals? Uh, well, we have a vibrant online presence, uh, an amazing team that is constantly innovating. We love to jump into new platforms and sample them. We are reaching out to earlier career professionals via those platforms. Um, we're trying different kinds of branding. Uh, what we're searching for is a way to be relevant and useful to people earlier in their careers and to reach them where they are. We don't expect them to buy the physical magazine, but if they're hanging out on TikTok, if they're hanging out uh, on Instagram, wherever they are, we want to be there to serve them. And is there any use of AI that you're seeing in the editorial staff or is the HBR using it in any way? We're talking about it. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a very hot topic right now throughout the industry, everywhere, throughout every industry. Um, what we know is that our values don't change. That our our authors and we are responsible for whatever it is we publish, and so um, the accountability does not change. All right. So the last question for you is of a personal kind. What would you be doing in your life if not this? Teaching. 